0: January 20th, 2018, in the main event of UFC 220, UFC heavyweight champion Stipe Miocic answered the challenge from Francis Ngannou, a 260-pound ball of muscle and Ford Escort metaphors who was at that time on a 10-fight win streak all by finish. Despite the fact that Miocic was going for a record third consecutive title defense and had already built a resume as an all-time great, the champ entered the cage as a slight underdog that night. Miocic prevailed in dominant fashion. He swept all five rounds, including at least one obvious 10-8 round. Despite the one-sided nature of that beating, there was a sense that we might well see those two men face off in the octagon at least once more before all was said and done. After all, Miocic was just 35 at the time, and as scary as it sounded, Nganu still had something of the feel of a developing prospect. Three years later, Miocic and Nganu are indeed set to meet again. Since their first encounter, both men have prospered. In his next fight, Ngannou turned in a bewildering and hard-to-watch decision loss to Derek Lewis, but since then he's ripped through four top heavyweights in less than three minutes of combined cage time to earn a return date with the champ. Miocic has been less active, but nonetheless managed to bolster his case as the greatest heavyweight in mixed martial arts history by getting the better of a trilogy with two-division great Daniel Cormier. While some things have changed since January 2018, others have not. Mihajic remains the understated, arguably underrated, all-time grade, while Nganu is still an enigmatic, nearly unstoppable knockout machine. Despite the result of their first fight, Nganu once again figures to enter the cage as the betting favorite. Once the octagon door closes, they will fight not only for the UFC belt, but for their respective places in the pantheon of great MMA heavyweights. Hello, and welcome to the SureDog Radio Network preview for UFC 260, Miocic vs. Nganu 2. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of SureDog.com, and with me is Keith Schillen. Keith is the executive producer of the SureDog Radio Network, as well as the Loudmouth MMA Podcast Network. And at SureDog Radio, he is the host and creator of numerous shows, including MMA Past, Present, and Future, and of course, the Schillen and Duffy Show. Now, Keith, we have one hell of a historically important heavyweight fight at the top of this card. But before we get to that, we have a whole lot of other stuff, don't we? <laughs>
1: yeah. So you did an unbelievably fantastic intro. I just want to see you do an intro for the rest of them now. Like, let's see an epic uh, worthy versus Jamie Malarkey
0: oh, man. breakdown. It...
1: So, so that's what I'll say. The main, it's obviously this card is extremely top-heavy. Into the UFC's credit, you know, nothing they can do about COVID. They had a lot of fights fall out from COVID, including the co-main event, which was a fantastic matchup and title shot, you know, for Brian Ortega against Alec Volkanovsky So we'll give them a pass on, as much as we can. I mean, there's only so much things they can control in this hectic world. However, what I will give them credit for, even though the card is extremely top-heavy and there's nothing else too sexy, like the Co-Man event, is like, ugh, but it's a very competitive card. Like The fights are not easy to pick. There may be one or two fights that I'm confident in, and then everything else, it is a pick em fight. So if you're intrigued by the X's and O's of, you know, you don't really care about the level of fighter, but you more care about, you know, breaking down styles it is a fun f- card for that.
0: Yeah, it it's interesting in looking up and down the card how few fights there are with a 2 to 1 or greater favorite. You got a lot that are a literal pickem or, you know, minus 130 plus 115 on the comeback. So, uh obviously the the bookmakers are feeling the way you are what this card might lack in quality it it at least delivers in parity. So, I mean, th- there's something to be said there because if you're going to watch a card that has a bunch of people that are, you know, 0-3 in the UFC, 1-2 and 2 in the UFC, debuting in the UFC on short notice, at least they're not all squash matches.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree.
0: Really not a whole lot else to say about it other than just to take maybe an additional moment of silence to... Uh, mourn for the loss of the Alex Volkanovsky versus Brian Ortega fight, which, I mean, on paper, obviously it's an important fight, but just on paper seemed completely fascinating. I'm, am I am I off base by saying that's by far the fight that I was most intrigued by on this card, even above the main event?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, when you break down on the main event, there is really two ways to go with it. Steve A is gonna win very similar to how he won last time, or is gonna catch him by the chin early and knock him out like that's it. like right. that is not the case in the Co internet. There were so many ways that fight could have went. Uh, you know, it could have been Ortega with a submission early, volkanowski's volume, Ortega's power, the cardio like there were so many ways intriguing uh storylines st- intriguing stylistic things to break down, like, that was a really, like, that's not even just a good fight on this card. That's just a great fight for the entire year. Like, that was one of those ones where I don't know which way I was leaning yet. Uh, I did not do any tape study because that fight got canceled before I started on this card. But, yeah, that was, the the card lost a lot when that was canceled. But, you know, the benefit is there's another card that's going to benefit by having, you know, an extra loaded matchup on its card.
0: Yeah, and have they set a specific date that that's been pushed to yet? I don't think so. Because, I mean, that's a that's honestly, that's a pay-per-view headliner right there. It could. Yeah, it absolutely could. Otherwise, some upcoming pay-per-view is just going to get an embarrassment of riches as that slots into the co-main event again. <laughs> so we'll, we'll look forward to that. But for now, I mean, what we really want to do is talk about Mark andre Berrio versus Abu Azatar. right? Yeah, let's do it. So we kick off the prelims with Barrio versus Azatar. Uh, Marc-Andre Barrio, the 31-year-old Canadian, is 11-4 with one no contest overall. He is 0-3 with one no contest in the UFC. That no contest started as a win as he knocked out Oscar Piajota last June at UFC on ESPN 11. It was then overturned due to some USADA entanglements on Barrio's part. Uh, He takes on the returning Azatar, uh, older brother of the uh, Otman Azatar of the Mysterious Bag. The older Azatar brother, uh, 35 years old from Morocco, is 14-2-1 overall. He is 1-0 in the UFC, and if you don't remember that, it's because it was almost three years ago. Uh, His last fight, July of 2018 at UFC Fight Night, Shogun versus Anthony Smith where he took a unanimous decision over Vitor Miranda. Uh, odds on this one, close, as we alluded to off the top of the broadcast. Uh, Barrio is a slight favorite at minus 130, Azatar plus 110 as the slight underdog. Uh, worth mentioning that Azatar's absence as well due to uh, a USADA violation. So this is a USADA derby. It is a who the heck are these guys derby. Keith, if you can't tell me why I should care about this fight, at least tell me who's going to (laughs) win.
1: Okay, so I can't tell you why. I would say to make it more intriguing, like let them both be, you know, on PEDs or some some kind (laughs) of banned substance. Like, just if they're both going to do it, then it's okay. Um, I'll start breaking down Zatar first he he constantly is moving he's moving at a 100 miles an hour he's moving like somebody who has a bag of potatoes trying to sneak into some social <laughs> like he's moving around that quick uh, he's 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 very explosive he throws hard he closes distance well by cuz he's throwing winging punches that most people's going to naturally step back and kind of cover up he he he's a wild man uh, his punches are winging as i said he does target the body though, so he'll kind of wing at your head, and then when you kind of do your, you know, you covering up your head, he'll drop down to the body. If he gets to the clinch, he's very physically strong. He will scramble and he will scramble to try to get a submission, and he doesn't care what position it ends up. Like he'll lose position. Um, he's got very weak takedown events. You can take him down, and he struggles to get off a bottom. And his cardio is. I don't want to say bad because he's still fighting hard in the third round but when you come out like the Tasmanian devil in the first round you're going to start looking much slower in the third. Move over to Barrio. He's aggressive. Uh, he fights behind a high guard. He does have a little Tito Ortiz defense where he if you throw at him he likes to kind of just cover up, hide behind his his arms and his and his elbows similar to what Alistair Overeem does. He has good power. His right hand is pretty accurate, though he does rely on it a little too much. He also head hunts with his punches, meaning that he won't really attack the body. But he does have kicks, specifically calf kicks. He he wants to be the one coming forward, and when you can press him back, he does struggle. That's, that's where uh, Jung Ho Park had most success, was getting to, to, to kind of have to retreat a little bit. He will go for a takedown, even though he's a striker. He'll go for a takedown. And he showed some pretty good takedown defense against Yako. And other than Azetar, his card is pretty good. Like, he'll continue to fight, third, you know, deep in the third. So this is a tough fight right out of the gate. Azetar's aggression, explosion, have had me leaning towards him. If he can force Barial on his back foot, he'll actually have a lot of success. I expect him to do that early. However, Barial can with Stand that initial flurry. He could be, you know, start landing his own shots, start picking them apart from distance as, as Zatar gasses out. I see a really close matchup. I think this is going to go to the judge's decision. I think this has split decision written all over it. And I'm going to go with the more calm fighter. So this is one of those ones where I wrote down one guy's name before tape study and then switched. <laughs> this is, that's pretty much the the, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, the Motto or this? I did it a lot in this card. Uh, give me Barrio by split decision.
0: I feel as though I I really want marc Andre Barrio to be a good fighter. Like I want him to be UFC quality and stick around because he's one of those guys that even in a fight that goes to the judges, I I, I always find myself uh, entertained. Having said that, four fights in, I just haven't seen anything to tell me that he's UFC quality. Like, you know, he lost his first three, he was competitive in all three of them, but none of them were against world beaters. Then he beat Oscar Piajota in a battle of guys that were 0-3 in the UFC coming in, like one of the lowest level fights that you could make in the UFC at middleweight. He did win that, but then uh, he, uh, you know, he tested positive for, and you know, I know it was ruled, it was ruled, you know, inadvertent, but uh, o- Osterine. I'd, I have a, a tough time with this one just because I have no faith that Azatar is going to look the same as it did almost three years ago. You know, like going from age 32 to age 35, having a USADA suspension. You know, we're going to get to at least one prominent fighter later on this card who has looked worse in the USADA era. Even without any positive tests, and you're just kind of left to throw your hands up and and speculate as to why that might be. the the azatar of three years ago, I think beats Barrio, but I'm with you. I'm gonna go with the more known quantity. Like I know that marc Andre Barrio is a you know he's a C plus fighter. He's a borderline UFC talent at best, but at least I know that about him. So uh, give me Barrio by decision as well but I could look really dumb in about two and a half minutes if Azatar looks great and just flatlines him. So I guess we'll see. Next up on the UFC 260 prelims is a featherweight matchup between Shane Young and Omar Morales. Young, the 27-year-old New Zealander, is 13-5 and overall. He is 2-2 two and two in the UFC. He competed most recently at UFC 253, Last September, where he knocked out Ludovic Klein, or sorry, was knocked out by Ludovic Klein uh, in just a minute and change with a head kick. He takes on Morales, the 10 and 1, 35 year old Venezuelan who goes by Venezuelan fighter, he is 2 and 1 in the UFC since joining the promotion off of the third season of Dana White's contender series. He competed early on in his UFC run as a lightweight. He has now dropped to featherweight, Uh, most recently appeared at UFC Fight Night Morais versus Sandhagen last October, where he lost a unanimous decision to Giga Chikadze. Odds on this one do favor the Venezuelan. He is out there at minus 190. You can get Young on the comeback at plus 155 or plus 160. Gotta tell you, Keith, I'm kind of surprised we're talking about this one at all, considering that we lost... Uh, City kickboxing standout Brad Riddell off of last Saturday's card. He had been scheduled to fight Gregor Gregor Gillespie. We've lost Alexander Volkanovsky off of this weekend's card. Of course, our scheduled co-main event, Shane Young, their city kickboxing teammate, remains on the card, despite the fact that that camp is apparently a plague zone. Maybe they just make Young train in a different room. I don't know why. Uh, who have you got in this one, and how do you see it playing out?
1: Yeah, this is one of those ones, as you mentioned, I assume this fight was canceled, and that was the rumor, and then it was rumored that it was back on, and and still nobody really knows. Uh, so it was one of those ones that I didn't do film study until a couple hours ago when I was like, oh, maybe this fight is actually happening. Um, as far as I, is who I think is going to win, no, I'll start with Shane Young. Uh thing that always jumps out to me is his his crazy output. He's But he's... What I like about him is it's a controlled pressure. Like he, He's not like Zadar where he's throwing wildly. He's coming forward with a game plan. He works behind a jab. He just touches with it, waits for the moment for an opening. And when it does, that's when he starts to sit on his punches, unload good shots. If he can get in the pocket, that's his best position. That's where he unloads good combinations. I liked it as combinations of mixtures from going to the head and to the body. He doesn't really have too much power, though. Um, I mean, when he almost power shots, he does. But I'm just saying, generally speaking, he's not a—he's not a big, heavy. He's not going to knock you out one shot. He has good head movement. He has a little bit of a bob and weave style to get in, but he gets hit a lot, and that's what just happens when you're always trying to get the ground. You're going to walk into shots. Uh, He is willing to land one to to take one. That's kind of his style. He's a good offensive wrestler, but pretty weak defensive wrestler. Uh, as far as Morales, now, Morales is aggressive, too. He's also a pressure striker himself. He's more of a pressure counter striker. Uh, I always like to point out, like, Chris Cyborg style, where he, he's pressuring with his feet to get you to kind of throw at him, and then he counters with uh, pretty fast shots, hard shots. He also, not a lot of head movement, more of a like a parrying style. He does – he throws leg kicks, but he also checks leg kicks, which I like about him. Because very few fighters check leg kicks. If he can get to the clinch, he's vis- very physically strong. He's got okay hip entries, but he's more of an upper body, uh, you know, double underhook, bear hug style. His last fight, though, is, is is a little concerning because he took a lot, a lot of damage from Jiga Kakatsi. It was it, – it was, um, it was like striking clinic, but I give Morales credit because despite being overmatched on the feet, he continued to make it a gritty fight by working forward. This is another tough call. I'm gonna go with Morales because I think he has the more physical tools. While Young is just he, Young is technically stout. Like Young has some limitations on athleticism, but he makes up for it just by being tough and and sound while Morales is just an overall better athlete, it really, to me, is going to come back down to who's going to force the other one to have to be fighting off their back foot, kind of be the reactive one. And I'm going to bet on Morales just being the more imposing fighter and hitting harder. So give me Morales in a really, really close fight. I'll take Morales by... I said split decision last time, so I'll go unanimous
0: decision. I like that you use the term imposing to describe morale because he was a burly guy even at 155 uh he didn't strike me as a guy who needed to cut to featherweight uh i mean he was winning fights at lightweight he won his way into the ufc at lightweight then just you know decided out of nowhere uh to drop to featherweight i'm on record as saying that's not a great idea for a fighter over 30 it's, it usually doesn't fix things and he didn't even need to fix anything at the time, but I think it's worked out uh, pretty well for him ever since. I also give him something of a pass on the Chikaze. If I just, I mean, Giga Chikaze does look like a future contender, even if he's not quite, hasn't quite measured up to the hype train that the UFC was trying to throw him onto. But yeah, I, I see Morales having having uh, physical advantages over Young. <clears throat> and I do think as you do that Young's style kind of, plays into what Morales wants to do not much for me to say x's and o's wise other than that and i do also favor Morales to win the decision i think the real question as we record this on wednesday night is whether this fight even makes it to the cage once again and if it does who's gonna corner young I'm, i'm just completely mystified that this fight is still happening anyway like that's something for us to you know kind of see what happens i guess
1: <laughs> That's a good point about who's going to be his quarterback.
0: We move up to the light heavyweight division for a matchup between uh, two European prospects who they're fighting for. I, I don't know. Maybe the winner gets another shot at Jimmy Crute. Who knows? It is Modestus Bukowskis versus Michal Oleg Shechuk. Uh, Oleg the 26 year old pole, is 14 and four with one no contest overall. He is two and two with one no contest since joining the UFC. He is on a two fight uh, skid at the moment, having lost to Jimmy Crute at UFC fight night Felder versus Hooker last February, and having lost to Ovin St. Prue at UFC fight night Hermanson versus Cannoneer all the way back in September of 2019. That snapped a two fight winning streak in which he had beaten Gajimurad Antigulov and John Vellante. His opponent, Bukowskis, the 27 uh, year old Lithuanian, is 11 and 3 overall. He is 1 and 1 uh, in the UFC. He fought most recently last October at UFC Fight Night Ortega versus Korean Zombie, where he was knocked out by Jimmy Crute in the first round. Before that, he appeared last July at UFC on ESPN 13, where he knocked out Andreas Mihailidis uh, at the at basically at the close of of round one, Oleksyachuk, the slight favorite here, uh, minus one fifty five. You can get Bukowskis, uh around plus one thirty five. Keith, I, and this is, gonna be, uh, this is going to be this is going to be a theme, especially on the undercard here, because we have to go pretty deep into this card before we even get to a fight where I am willing to say that I'm confident that both fighters are UFC material, and we are not there yet. I don't, I don't think either of these guys is, is really UFC material. And that's not to say that they suck completely or they suck forever. I mean, we're talking about guys who were 26 and 27 respectively, but neither of these guys has it. I mean, Jimmy Crute destroyed both of them and Crute is, you know, is an intriguing prospect and maybe a fringe contender within the next year or two. Oleg Sheshuk, I mean, he is officially 2-2 two and two in the UFC, but there's a hard divide. Jimmy Crute and Obense Prude destroyed him, and Gajimurad Antagulov, who is one of the lowest-level light heavyweights to make it into the UFC in the last you know few years, that that's the kind of guys that, that he beat, or like the ghost of John Vellante right before he moved up to heavyweight. Uh, the problem here is that the style matchup i do think favors oleksiychuk. Bukowskis, he wants to be an outfighter. He wants an outside uh kickboxing game where he can use his jab, he can use his kicks and kind of fight at a relatively deliberate pace at, at you know at the outside range and he simply doesn't have the physicality to force that on ufc level light heavyweights. uh And nor does he have like really the footwork to impose it on UFC level light heavyweights, nor does he really have the power to give them pause. It just, it was too easy for Jim Crute to, to crumple the pocket on this guy and get inside on him. And while I don't have any faith in Oleg Shachuk long-term, I think he's going to be able to do that to Bukowskis. He is very aggressive early on. Uh, you know, you, you saw that in the Volante and, and Tagulov knockouts. If this goes past the first round, it's anybody's guess, but I don't think it's getting there. I just think chechuk is gonna is gonna swarm him, get inside on him, you know, and just probably just mug him with, with punches. Maybe he goes to the ground, he finishes with ground and pound. But give me Mihal Oleg Shechuk by first round uh TKO.
1: Yeah, I think he had a great good breakdown of this KSW main event. Um <laughs> I mean, sorry, U- <laughs> UFC Belgium or Dana White Contender Series, Lithuania. Uh, um, yeah, we'll start with <laughs> enough jokes. I'll start with the breakdown. Um, well, Sijak, you know, he's southpaw. As you mentioned, he's very aggressive. He's a pressure striker, really more of a boxer. Loves his overhand left. He will attack the body. Good power. Uh, His aggression, similar to what we were talking about, some of the other guys on the card, similar to his ATAR, he'll walk into his own shots because of that. Uh, He's terrible on the ground. We saw what Jimmy Crude did to him. We saw what Ophan St. Prude did to him. He got subbed in his last two fights. He's just not good on the ground. Now move over to uh, Bukakis. He landed on his feet pretty fast. You mentioned that he's an outfighter. That's what I wrote down in my notes. Uh, straight shots, I'll give him, you know, credit for that. He'll throw in these ugly spinning attacks for no reason that I haven't seen really be effective yet. Uh, calf kicks, that is a tool of his, but he's not going to take this fight to the ground himself. He's got weak takedown defense. I'll give him credit when he has been taken down, he's done pretty good to scramble up. Uh, he has won two fights from that Travis Brown downward elbows, Including his UFC debut, when he was defending a takedown, he he lands uh, shots. Uh, I'm worried about his chin, though. Uh, he was brutally knocked out in his last fight against Jimmy Crute. Uh, his cardio is good, though. He has fought deep into fights on the regional scene, like fourth and fifth round fights. Third fight, I think this is a close call. I'm not nearly as confident as you seem to be. I don't expect either guy to take it to the ground. I expect this to be a slugfest with Olesajek's boxing versus Bukakis' kickboxing. I like Olesajek. I think he's a little faster. I think he faces tougher competition. I think his aggression will get him in that pocket area where he's going to want to fight instead of the out, as you mentioned, for Bukakis. I think Bukakis uh, beats him to the punch in the slugfest. I will say it goes to the decision, and I think it's going to be an all out war I think it's going to be one of the more entertaining. I almost picked it as my fight of the night. Uh, but I got another one later on that I like a little bit better, but, uh, give me all this Sajak by decision.
0: Next up on the UFC 260 prelims, it is a welterweight matchup between Jared Gooden and Abubakar Nurmagomedov. Gooden, the 27 year old Georgian is 17 and five overall. He is 0 and 1 in the UFC, having made his debut at UFC 255 last November and lost a unanimous decision to Alan Joban. Nurmagomedov, the cousin of the now officially retired former UFC lightweight champ, is 31 years old from Dagestan, of course. He is 15-3-1 overall. He also is 0-1 after uh, joining the UFC off of the 2018 season of Professional Fighters League. He debuted against David Zavada and dove straight into a triangle choke in the first round all the way back at UFC Fight Night, Magomed Sharipov versus Cater in November of 2019. Uh, Despite that inauspicious debut, Nurmagomedov is heavily favored here. He is minus 235. You can get Gooden at plus 195, so almost a two to one there for the underdog. Funny thing about this one, even though this is two guys who are both 0-1 in the UFC right now, Of all the fights so far, this is the one where I'm most confident both these guys will probably still be in the UFC a year from now. Uh, Tell me what you think of these two and and how you see the fight playing out, Keith.
1: Uh, Yeah, so I'll start with Namagamadov. Obviously, he's got the famous last name. Southpaw works by a – he has a stiff jab. Like, it's not a touching jab. He actually tries to hurt you with it. Uh, I go back to one fight that was bothering me on the feet where he was going against uh, Boyan Velikovic. He kept, th- and I might have butchered that name. I apologize if I did. Uh, he kept throwing a naked uppercut, which is going to get him knocked out if, if the higher level he goes, um, facing good strikers. He, His last name is so you know he's going to want to get the fight to the ground. Great wrestler. He's really good at reshooting his missed shots, and that's important because he tends to shoot from too far away, so a lot of his initial shots get stuffed. And he does that, like, uh, when you really see good wrestlers do, well, I'm sorry. All right, so, like I mentioned, he'll he'll shoot from too far away. The other thing that was disturbing, especially in the PFL, is for such a great wrestler, he was actually taken down by fighters in the PFL that are less accomplished wrestlers than him. Point In case, like, Velikovich took him down a couple times. Uh, To his credit, though, he is good at continuing a scramble and using it to get back to his feet. Um, I'm also... He's not untouchable. I mean, like, his of his three losses, two of them had been by submission, so that's something to watch out for. And his gas tank isn't good. I mean, he lost. I mean, he gassed out in a two-round fight, and I keep mentioning up the Vilkovich fight because that was a very, very close. It was a draw. It was one of those weird PFL two-round draw thing. But he gassed out in the second round. If there was a third round in that fight, he was going to lose. Now, move on to, to Gooden. Uh, first thing that jumps out, I mean, he's a big dude for his weight class. We talked about it the last time when he fought Alan Joban. Uh, I like his punches are short. Uh, Not a lot of tells in them. He doesn't really telegraph them. He kind of just touches. Everything comes off of his jab. He lacks power because it kind of arm punches. He doesn't really step into them. But he lands because of that. Uh, He does well to slide into range and target the body. Um, He also throws a... Naked rear uppercut, which is going to get him knocked out. So it'd be kind of funny if one of these guys lands on the other one. Um, He doesn't handle pressure well, and he doesn't handle anybody who's more explosive than him on the feet. And that's probably not the case in this fight. Uh, He's an okay wrestler where he can mix in some takedowns, but I would give, like if I was ranking his wrestling, I'd put it like a C. Like he's not bottom of the barrel, but he's not good either. So as far as prediction, Namaga Madoff is not Habib. I'm just going to throw it out there right now. It, it doesn't need to be said, but I'll say it anyways. I think the betting line is reflecting some of that because they you know, that read that name. This is the fourth fight on the card, and this is the fourth fight in a row that I actually think is a tough fight to call. Namaga Madoff obviously is going to have a, an advantage on the ground, but Gooden should have an advantage in the gas tank. So I expect Namaga Madoff to win the first round. I expect Gooden to win the third round, and the second round is going to be a toss-up. You know, if Gooden can stop some takedowns in the second half and land, I mean, in the second half of the fight and land some punches, he's going to win. And I actually think it's going to happen. Namaga Madoff fights down to his, seems like he fights down to his competition. It seems like every one of his fights are close. I think this has split decision, right? all of it. I'm going to take, I'm going to take Gooden to pick up his first UFC win in a, in a big upset. And this is my upset special of the night.
0: Damn it, Keith you stole all i should have just gone first cuz you stole all my upset thunder i couldn't agree more that abubakar nurgamamedov is not khabib uh, you mentioned that the the basic dynamic of the wrestling approach is going to be the same it's it's going to be largely the same with anybody from that family from that camp but the the difference is in all the nuances the the thing that that khabib often didn't get credit for, just because a lot of his wins were just so grindy, is what a fantastic athlete he was. Just how quick, how strong, just, you know, how how fluid. Uh, Abubakar and Nurmagomedov is not that. Then the other differences, they do come out in Nurmagomedov or in Abubakar's game. Uh, Khabib, the guy practically never made a mental mistake. I mean, you need a little bit of luck to get to, to 29 and 0, But you also need to be just incredibly smart and mentally sound in the cage. Abubakar is not that. I mean, we saw him just dive right into a triangle from David Zavada, who in KSW was known as just your prototypical KSW slugger. And all of a sudden he's like, you know, Abu Dhabi Zavada against uh, Abubakar. And also, Khabib was never tired, or at least he was never the more tired guy in his fights. Abubakar's gas tank is bad. Boyan Beliskovich probably would have finished him in the third round. Uh, I I don't think his lapses on the ground are, are a path to victory that Jared Gooden is going to exploit against him, but his gas tank, you know, and his wrestling game being just a little notch below are something he can. I, I see it kind of the same way you do. Nurmagomedov will probably get takedowns in the first round if he wants them, but... I haven't seen anything from him that tells me he's going to take advantage of that to finish Gooden or to put a 10 8 round on him that changes the whole complexion of a decision if and when it gets there. Uh, Gooden, for as big as he is, you know, a six foot four uh, welterweight with a big wingspan, whatever kind of weight cut he has, it doesn't seem to sap him that badly. Because, I mean, he was fine in the third round of just an absolutely torrid fight against Alan Ban. That was a wild fight. Both of them just swung and threw down for 15 minutes. And while I thought Gooden lost all three rounds, it wasn't because he was getting tired faster. Like he, he was there for it. Uh, I, I'm with you. I, I think Gooden wins the third round. I think Nurmagomedov wins the first. The second is anyone's guess, but I'm with you. I'm, I'm leaning towards Gooden to take this, uh, you know, by decision. All right. After a brief off-air break, so that Keith and I could do a quick welfare check on the state of New England MMA, we are back for a 205-pound clash between Alonzo Menafield and short-notice step-up opponent Fabio Charant. Menifield, the 33-year-old uh, Texan, is nine and two overall. He is two and two in the UFC since joining off of the second season of Dana White's contender series. He is currently on a two fight losing streak. Uh, He lost to Ovin St. Prue via knockout at UFC fight night Overeem versus Sakai last September. Last June, he lost a unanimous decision to Devin Clark. That snapped a two-fight win streak for him upon entering the UFC, having knocked out Paul Craig and Vinicius Moreira both uh, in the first round. He takes on Charant, who steps up on short notice to replace William Knight. Charant, your LFA light heavyweight champion as of about uh, four weeks, not five weeks ago, uh, is 26 years old. He is seven and one overall. He did appear on Dana White's Contender Series uh, Season 3 back in 2019. He lost to Alexa Kamer and did not get the UFC uh, contract, obviously. Went back to uh, toil in the trenches of LFA and CES. As I mentioned, on February 12th at LFA 99, he did beat Myron Dennis to win the LFA uh, title. He now gets the relatively short... well. Relatively short turnaround, extremely short notice call up to uh, face Menafield. I will say you look at Fabio Chirant's record, and, you know, he's seven and one. Five of his seven wins are by submission. And your initial impression would be, okay, this guy is a grapple at all costs type guy, but he really is not. Uh, against Alexa Kamer on the contender series, he he did not even try to get the fight to the ground in spite of the fact that he was pretty clearly outgunned on, on the feet. And same thing in the Dennis fight just uh, last month, he is, he's not refined, but he's an extremely willing and aggressive striker. I mean, he comes out uh, swinging big. He's willing to throw head kicks. Uh, and he has uh, obvious amounts of natural power. He's a guy that I have the feeling that with some, Time and and proper schooling could become a really dangerous striker in the light heavyweight division. It's kind of intriguing that a guy whose bread is completely buttered on the submission side uh, has such kind of quietly impressive natural tools on the feet. You wouldn't expect it from a guy who calls himself the water buffalo. Uh, Alonzo Menifield, much more of a known quantity at this point. The only problem is that quantity. His his issues have been laid bare. At, at this point in his last two fights against Devin Clark. He went in as a huge underdog. I'm sorry. He went in as a huge favorite uh, looked to be about to duplicate his first round knockout performance uh, against Clark. And then when that didn't happen, he hit the wall and he hit the wall. Like I've seen very few people do at the UFC level. He was completely exhausted uh, and from there, Clark just completely took over. It was uh, about as straightforward a two rounds to one decision as as I've seen against open St. Preux. He seemed to uh, he's I mean he he seemed to try to pace himself a little better, you know, at least well enough to outlast open St. Preux. But then just ran face first, hands down, into a left handed counter by OSP that just completely face planted him. I, this is more of a referendum on Menafield than on, uh, than on Charant. Cause, you know, fair play. I've watched two of Charant's fights very closely more than once. And for the rest of it, it's mostly kind of, you know, checking out highlights. But I don't trust Menafield to beat Fabio Charant. I don't trust Menafield to beat any UFC quality light heavyweight at this point, and while I think this is a little early for Charant, I don't think it's out of the question. I mean, the guy's only got eight fights under his belt, and he's got clear amounts of potential. Menafield certainly could just sleep this guy in the first round. Sharant is there to be hit. He's been hit a lot in all of his fights that I, I watched. But if Sharant survives the first round, he has so many avenues to victory. He can hit, and Menafield's hands go down when he's tired. Uh, he can wrestle and he can grapple. Menafield is there to be wrestled and grappled once he's tired. I don't believe I mentioned this off the top, but Menafield remains a massive favorite. Uh, he is minus 275 right now. Charant plus 240. Uh, this is my upset special of the night. Give me Fabio Charant to uh, have to relinquish that LFA light heavyweight belt as he makes a surprising, successful victorious UFC debut on ultra short notice. Give me Fabio Charance, And I'm going to say uh, by third round submission.
1: Wow. Nice job. So, man, I like to break down. So you mentioned Menafield. These last two fights, we've seen like two extremes with him. The first one being, as you mentioned, coming out way too hard against Devin Clark and gassing. And then the second one was, was doing nothing against St. Peru until he ran into a punch. I want to find the guy in between because the guy in between is not bad. He's, he's got some pretty, I mean, he's good athlete. He's got some good head movement, uh, fights behind a, a tight high guard. He tends to fight in spurts. When he does, he'll dart in to range, uh, to throw a combo like he did against St. Prude. We just happened to get caught with a perfectly timed strike. Uh, he will fight from distance, which, with single strikes from on the outside, which makes no sense considering he is a shorter, light heavyweight. He did struggle a little bit with the you know, the length of OH St. Pru so I'm assuming he will change that. Uh, he can be too impatient. He has like earth shattering power though. Um just look at the guy. We talked about when we broke down him versus William Knight a couple weeks ago, we just said like which guy is the less built one that both built like brick shit shithouses? Uh, he throws everything hard. Hard leg kicks. He's got a quick high kick. Uh, I am a little worried about his chin, though, as he was brutally knocked out by St. Peru in his last fight. I, I kind of say that anytime someone was knocked out, their fight right before. He hasn't shown much in the grappling department. He did show early takedown defense against Devin Clark, but when he gassed out, that completely changed. Move over to Charant. Sharon's undersized. Like he probably should be a middleweight. Um, he's got a lot of muscle, but he's um he's not built like Menefield. He's a southpaw, he's pretty young and raw on his feet. I understand what you said when you said he's aggressive. I think he's I think he throws hard. I don't know if he's aggressive. Like I think he throws a lot of time to throw one punch at a time. His left hand though, his straight left is a good strike. That was the fo- the strike that he was landing on um Myron Dennis when he had some success against Kamer. It was that punch. Um he does good to follow it to close the distance in a hurry. He some Technical flaws and defensively, though, he lacks head movement. He tends to back straight up. That's where Kamer was having success against him. He doesn't like being pressured or having to fight off his back foot. He's not a great wrestler at all, but he does find a way to get to the fight at the ground. One of the ways he'll do that is he'll just catch a kick and bull rush you over. His ground game is pretty solid, though. He's He's got heavy, heavy top pressure. He kind of he looks for a position before submission uh, but as you mentioned, five of his seven wins have come by submission. So he finds the submission after controlling on the ground. Uh, he's a little bit of a specialist where he goes for head attacks, uh, guillotines, anacondas. I think like three of his submissions come by that way. This is the tough fight to call. It, I would have been very confident in Menafield before the Myron Dennis fight. But getting a fight against a veteran like Myron Dennis, guy who's kind of fought on a higher level, like going 25 minutes against him, that'll do wonders for a guy like Fabio Schrapp. One, his confidence, two, just the, the experience. Also having to contend a serious fight makes you, you know, even though it didn't go his way. Those are good things. That said, I still don't think Sharant is ready for the UFC. But you mentioned it. If you're going to fight someone in the UFC and you're not ready, Menafields the right opponent because he does have some glaring weaknesses. I expect them to both kind of land on the feet with Menafield having the advantage of the power. I expect Charette to try to wrestle. I don't know if he can take Menafield down. And then taking the fight on such show notice gives me a little less confident. You are from Texas, and you picked a New Englander to beat the Texan. Well, I am from New England. And I am picking the Texaner center to beat the New Englander. Uh, I think Menafield will eventually land one of the big sh- shots. I think he's going to put Sharon out. So give me Menafield by second round TKO.
0: That brings us to the main card of UFC 260. And the pay per view kicks off with a lightweight attraction between Jamie Malarkey and Kama Worthy. Malarkey. The 26-year-old Australian is 12-4 and overall. He is a perfect 0-2 in the UFC, having lost to Brad Riddell at his uh, debut all the way back in October of 2019 at UFC 243. Then lost once again to I Zayam at UFC Fight Night Ortega versus Korean Zombie last October. He faces Worthy. The 34 year old Pittsburgh native is 16 and 7 overall. He is 2 and 1 in the UFC. Uh, he lost in his most recent uh, performance uh, against Otman Azatar at UFC Fight Night Watterson versus Hill uh, in September of 2020. Before that, he had been kind of a surprising and fun little story as he came in as an unheralded prospect in his 30s and knocked out Devontae Smith in his debut, then choked out Luis Pena in his second appearance. Uh, Nonetheless, despite the setback in his most recent uh, outing, Worthy is the slight favorite here. He's out there at minus 130. You can get Malarkey at plus 110 as the underdog. Keith, uh, who wins this one and how?
1: The UFC does because the masses of people that are going to want to check out this fight to order the pay-per-view to make sure they see Kama Worthy versus Jamie Malarkey. Um, Surprisingly, though, it is an intriguing matchup, all joking aside. Uh, Worthy, uh, I wrote down the first two notes I wrote down, was a tough dude and a bit of an overachiever. For a guy like he... He's one fight in the UFC. Before he came to UFC, I wouldn't have guessed that. Like, I didn't see anything special on him. I thought he was going to be a classic two-and-out kind of guy. Uh, he's a counter-striker. He does his counter-striking. He has long limbs, and he does a lot of hand fighting. Like, he likes to grab the hands, kind of, um, you know, pull down, parry off the hands. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, good lateral head movement, He, it, which is funny because he, he's he's lateral with his head, but not his feet, he's like a stationary target In front of his opponent, so you can attack his legs You can attack his body, but It's actually hard to hit him in the head, because he kind of Bounces off the side, uh, he will Attack the body himself, he's got good Power, not much In the wrestling department, he doesn't really look To wrestle, uh, he is a weak Defensive wrestler, I'd say his overall grappling needs improvement, he was in his fight against Luis Pena, he was mounted. He was actually almost head and arm triangled. But in the same fight, he actually caught Pena in a really crazy deep guillotine. So what the hell do I know? Um, Also, his last fight, his first fight in the UFC that he lost, it was over quick. Autumn and Zaytar cracked him, put him down like a bag of potatoes in in like a minute. Uh, Move over to Jamie Malarkey. I thought he won his last fight against Faris Zayam. I I, I I apologize if I'm saying that name wrong. I looked at MMA decisions. It was fifteen to two on MMA decisions, so I, the majority believe that he should have won. Malarkey's unathletic, but he makes up for it by just insane toughness. Like this guy won't stop. Uh, he's kind of slow, but he just makes up for it by just continuing, coming, constant pressure. Uh, if he can get in the pocket, he can kind of crack a little bit. Uh, he almost knocked out uh, Brad Riddell in that fight and actually took Brad Riddell's back in the third round and was looking for a rear naked choke in a fight that, one, I think we both talked about very highly of Brad Riddell and how good he is. But also, like that was a fight Brad Riddell was beating the brakes off on, and he still almost won the fight. Uh, he adds calf kicks, which I like that he adds that. He seems like an intelligent fighter. He's a good chain wrestler. Uh, he's well relentless to get the takedown. He's got a, kind of, some pretty good timing his top control isn't the best. Like he struggles to keep guys down Though Uh, his cardio is good though. Um, he can take a beat and he'll keep fighting. Um, this is a really good matchup. I think it's actually going to be kind of fun as, even though I kind of cracked on it, um, early on, I expect this to be a war. Marlachia is one of those guys that he's actually better than I remember. Like when I started doing film study, I was like, wow, this guy's not a scrub. Um, like I mentioned, he gave Riddell a, a much better fight than I expected. I expect him to get some takedowns on Worthy. I think Worthy's gonna land some good shots on the feet. I think this is gonna be war. This is my fight of the night pick, and I'm gonna go with Jamie Marlarkey by split decision.
0: Great. I really like the the comma worthy story. You know, I liked that he arrived in the UFC with kind of that big surprising splash. He's been just kind of a a delight on on the mic. It's been kind of fun to see. A bit of a a weird personality uh, out of the the guy. So I'm glad that he's uh, stuck around as long as he has. Obviously, he got trucked by Oppmann uh, as I tar. But I think even the Pena fight kind of showed me his ceiling. Even though he, he won that fight, just the way that fight played out showed me Kama Worthy's ceiling. It's crazy. I mean... He, you know, he joined the UFC. I think he was already 32. Uh, this is how much of a veteran he is. His third fight was against Paul Felder, and it was also Felder's third fight. A little bit of, uh, you know, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh versus uh, Philly, uh, but just yeah, he he feels like he's been around forever, and he kind of came out of nowhere to me because if you come to the UFC or you come to Bellator through LFA, uh, CFFC. You know, one of those promotions, a Titan, certainly. I've probably seen you fight a couple times. But because Worthy came up through uh, just really tiny Pittsburgh promotions, I had not seen anything from this guy before he fought Devontae Smith uh, back in 2019. It's kind of funny that he's nicknamed the Death Star. I think that's actually the perfect nickname because he got a quick knockout against... Uh, Devontae Smith, but that's not normally his game. He's normally like the Death Star. He just takes forever to charge up that laser and then he blows up all run. You know, you look back at, at his record, there's not a lot of first round finishes there. There's a lot of decisions and there's a lot of second and third round finishes. Uh, he's a guy who can wait, 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 and maybe wait, wait, wait a little too much. Malarkey's not going to let him do that, which is why I love this fight. You know, it probably informs why it's your fight of the night pick, because Malarkey is going to pull an exciting fight out, out of Kamaworthy. Uh, do you picked, you picked malarkey, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Okay. Uh, I'm divided enough on this one that I'm going to go with worthy. I don't think he's going to get the finish, but I think he is going to end up test firing the death star. It's going to be enough to win him, uh, at least one round. I'm going to say he scrapes another out of there somewhere or other. We've already determined that the judges don't like Jamie Malarkey for some reason. So give me a comma worthy by split decision, and I would not be surprised either if this was the fight of the night. We move over to the flyweight division where uh, Jillian Robertson takes on Miranda Maverick. Robertson, the 25-year-old Canadian, is 9-5 and overall. She is 6-3 and since uh, joining the UFC off of the 26th season of The Ultimate Fighter. She fought most recently at UFC fight night Thompson versus Neil back on December 19th, losing a unanimous decision to Tyler Santos that snapped a two fight winning streak for her. Uh, she'll be taking on Maverick, the 23 year old Missourian, is 8 and 2 overall. She is 1 and 0 oh, since joining the UFC out of uh, Invicta Fighting Championships. She appeared at UFC 254 last October, where she brutalized Liana Jojua, just split her face wide open, uh, forcing a doctor stoppage at the end of the first round, but of a fight in which she was overwhelming Jojua anyway. Uh, odds seem to reflect that. Maverick is a slight favorite at minus 160. Robertson, you can get at plus 140. I'll say this much for Jillian Robertson. She is the, the upgraded Random Marcos because where Random Marcos very famously alternated wins and losses forever, Jillian uh, Robertson wins two, then loses one, wins two, then loses one. But it's not numerology. It's that every third fight, she faces someone who can bully her physically. Jillian Robertson to me is 25-year-old Roxanne Modafferi. Modafferi, for most of her career, was uh, not physically strong for the weight classes in which she was forced to compete. You know, because she spent time at 135, just because that's where there were fights. Uh, always, always a minus athlete, terrible striker, decent wrestler, and a very savvy and uh, opportunistic grappler. That's what I see in in Jillian Robertson. Obviously, she has all the time in the world. To shore uh, those things up, but that's what she is. And she's taking on Maverick, who Maverick is a physical brute. She is a bull. Uh, yes, she destroyed Liana Jojua in her debut, but honestly, her last two fights in Invicta against Pearl Gonzalez and uh, Deanna Bennett were probably tougher matchups than Jojua. Uh, you know, that, that's why I was high on Maverick coming into this. Uh, Maverick, in in terms of kind of like your young burly female prospects, she's a lot closer to Aspen Lad than to Macy Barber for me. Maverick wants to, um, Maverick wants to close the distance, throw you on the ground, jump on top, and just elbow you until you give her an, an arm bar or a choke or something. That that's that's Miranda Maverick's game to me. She is short for the division because she's so. Uh, muscled and so burly, you know, At I think she's 5'3". She's going to be shorter than basically everyone she fights except for Jessica Andrade. Uh, eventually, she's going to come up against women where that's that her, her height, her lack of reach, the fact that she, I mean, she doesn't fight any longer than she is. You know, her, her punches are winging. She's she's not a huge kicker. She's going to come up against some women that they're going to make her pay for that. Jillian Robertson is not it. This is exactly the kind of matchup that has given Robertson problems in the past. It's someone who's going to be able to bully her, probably force her way to the clinch, toss Robertson on the ground, and Maverick, pr- I, I'm, I'm picking Maverick as being savvy enough not to get caught by some submission that Robertson throws up off her back or in a scramble. I see this as pretty straightforward. I don't think she's going to uh, finish her. Like, it's not going to be like the barber fight. But give me Miranda Maverick to win all three rounds in pretty straightforward fashion and uh, cement herself as one of the more interesting prospects in the women's flyweight division.
1: Yeah, I think that was a really good breakdown of the skill sets. I think you kind of summarize it pretty well. Um, Robertson, as we got to mention, you mentioned right off the top, she's only 25 years old, which is so crazy to think about the amount of fights she's had in the UFC. Uh, She's still really raw on the feet. And and all the notes I'm going to say about her is what we said a couple weeks ago when they were supposed to fight. So uh, if you listen to my breakdown of this fight, I haven't changed anything, so you can fast forward. Um, She's still raw on the feet. She's... Is a bit one dimensional um, She's st- stiff She lacks head movement Really has no power Throws arm punches And as I said with Montana De La Rosa I gave her a pass for a long time due to her age But when you have the amount of fights in the UFC She needs to start showing signs Of improvement on the feet um, Kicks are a strength But they're nothing special Like They, they can score her points But they're not going to end fights They're not like crushing leg kicks she has good entries. She can, you know, can drive through her hips, or she'll willing to catch a kick and just, you know, bull rush you over. Uh, she'll even like try to jump guard or flying submission to get to the fight to the ground. She tried. A, she doesn't have the highest IQ. She tried a flying arbor against Tilia Santos, which was a terrible idea because she ended up being on bottom of a girl who is a really <laughs> scary woman on top. So basically. What I'm trying to say is she's a top side grappler. She's a good grappler as long as she's on top. now, um she kind of has a little bit of the Damian Maya like reach underneath single that she can work. Um if she's on top, she has smother and top control, which are like against um Courtney Casey. like she can keep you down, really emphasis position over submission, but she'll eventually look for that submission. She has six submission wins. She doesn't rush it. She's patient with it perfect example i just mentioned is the courtney casey fight but if she's put on bottom she can she has good hip control where she can get a submission from there though she will play the the submission game instead of scrambling to her feet or trying to get on top where she's a lot more effective now as young as we talked about jillian Robinson, murder hackers even younger uh, she's as you mentioned Very physically imposing Absolute ripped southpaw Muay Thai specialist a High volume striker Uses movement really well Good at darting in and out of range Packing with, with good combos She's she's good at getting into her range To land her shots And then if you try to come into the range sh- She'll use like a sidekick Similar to like Holly Holm Kind of have a karate background To keep that space in close She's She's got a mean streak in her. The Jojua fight you talked about with the elbow, that was a nasty, gross... It was gushing blood. Clinch has a very good strength for her based on her physique. She can simply just muscle her opponent against the fence. She'll drop down on the hips, pull him out. Or she has, I would say, good entries. I think Jillian Robinson has better entries, but she can wrestle... Um, she more, She's more of a, a like t- a reactive double, which she can kind of get you to... like. Throw for the head and then she'll drop down. Then, a you know, Josh Kosh have run three hips kind of woman that's not her. Uh, but if she's on top, good top control looks for the Dagestani handcuff, looks to like hold you down, and she will brutalize you. mean streak in her. I think your comparison, Aspen Ladd, is perfect because Aspen Ladd is similar, get on top, has a mean streak, uh, good back take. She has four submission wins. Um. She does chase the submission a little bit, which is a problem. And her defensive wrestling could use improvements. So who's going to win this fight? It simply comes down to whether Robinson can take Maverick down and keep her down. I think she might be able to take her down one or two two times, but I don't think she'll be able to keep her there. I think Maverick's going to have enough time on the feet. I think she's going to piece her apart. I think if it gets to the ground, she'll be the one on top. She'll be controlling. She'll be landing some heavy ground and pound. Marina uh, Miranda is one of my favorite prospects, and not only in Women's MMA, but all of MMA. I really think this is a girl that's going to be in the top five fairly soon. I think she actually ends this, too. I think she brutalizes Jillian Robinson and finishes it in the second round by grinding pound.
0: Third from the top of the UFC 260 pay-per-view main card, it is a bantamweight matchup between Sean O'Malley and Thomas Almeida. O'Malley, the 26-year-old is 12 and 1 overall. He is 4 and 1 since joining the UFC off of the very first season of Dana White's Contender Series. He entered the UFC beating uh in increasingly well-regarded fighters in increasingly Impressive fashion, before running into Marlon Vera at UFC 252 last August, he uh, appeared to suffer a leg injury early in the fight, and then was uh, quickly finished off with ground and pound late in the first round uh, by Vera. He faces Almeida, the 29-year-old Brazilian, is 22 and four overall. He is five and four in the UFC. He fought most recently in October losing a unanimous decision to Jonathan Martinez at UFC Fight Night Ortega versus Korean Zombie. Uh, That extends his current losing streak to three straight. That is a losing streak that uh, extends all the way back to 2017, thanks to some injury and other layoffs uh, for Almeida. Perhaps reflecting that, uh, the odds heavily favor O'Malley. Uh, He is the highest favorite on the card at the moment, I believe at minus 3.05, where Almeida is available at plus 2.70. It's it's a funny thing how time has seemed to kind of stretch in the COVID era of the UFC. Once the UFC came back to action last May and they basically ran a, an average of over a card a week through the end of the year, and for the most part they were just at two different arenas, just things started to run together. And it's crazy, like how, what a short time ago it was that Sean Malley was a different thing. I mean, at the beginning of July of 2020, so nine months ago, uh, Kanzat Shumaya had, had not even fought in the UFC yet. Joaquin Buckley had not even fought in the UFC yet. Kevin Holland was just another middleweight. And the hottest prospect in the UFC was Sean O'Malley. You know, he had just completely dusted Eddie Wineland in in June. And he had it all. He was the guy with the rainbow hair, the cool tattoos, the Twitch stream. Uh, You know, he was young. He was cocky in a good way. Like, he was the guy that we figured might be a top 10 fighter and one of the biggest stars in the sport by this time. And what a difference nine months make. He's had his first loss in the cage. And... Since then, while the three guys I named have kind of risen to stardom and in some cases risen and even started to fall back to earth, he's mostly made headlines for all the worst reasons. You know, I I felt as though the fan space was kind of willing to, was on his side and willing to give him a pass on the Vera loss just because, you know, he did hurt his, you know, he did hurt his knee. Uh, But, you know, he managed to squander a lot of that goodwill just by constantly. Just being so salty about it and talking about how Vera was not in this league and, and all this and that. Then obviously there was the other thing just a month or two ago where he, you know, took some very ill-advised questions from Casey Kenny on his podcast. Finally, O'Malley is back in the cage, you know, to kind of remind us why we thought he was cool in the first place, which was for uh knocking people out while having pretty hair. Uh, for him to try and do that, you couldn't find a much better opponent than Thomas Almeida. Like, it is crazy to me that Almeida is still under 30 because it just feels like 10 lifetimes ago that he himself was the hottest prospect in the UFC. I mean, he, I believe he was 21-0 with 20 finishes, 16 by knockout when he took on Cody Garbrandt back in 2016. And that was the beginning of the end. Like, Garbrandt knocked him out. He's 1-4 and four, uh, since that fight. And just has looked like a shell of himself. He's, he's just not the guy who can do that stuff anymore. But he's still a guy that in order to win fights. Needs to march forward and throw strikes. That's bad news against O'Malley. Like this is a setup fight. This is a fight that has been crafted for Sean O'Malley. Not only to win. But to do something spectacular. And kind of put all those old headlines in the rear view. Get back on track as you know, a future star, if not a now star. And I think the matchmaking is going to work. O'Malley's a fast starter. I mean, obviously. Almeida is not a fast starter. And he, at least in his recent run, he's not a fast starter, not in the John Jones way, where he just kind of takes his time and doesn't really turn on the Jets. He's a slow starter in the Donald Cerrone way, where he's not comfortable in the first round. And if you put it on him, you can get him out of there or you can, you can do some serious damage to him. I think that's going to feed right into O'Malley. I mean, it seems pretty straightforward to me. And obviously if O'Malley's like wheels go out, it, you know, all bets are off. But give me O'Malley by first round knockout. He's probably going to pick up a $50,000 check for this. And uh, the, the hype train will be back on the tracks.
1: Well, first of all, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, because Sean O'Malley's undefeated. Oh, my. <laughs> let's just let's just put that <laughs> out there. He, he didn't lose. He's undefeated. Uh, obviously, I'm joking. Uh, he he won't accept his loss to, Malavera. Uh, Sean O'Malley, you said all the good things about him in his skills. The guy's crazy athletic, long and lengthy. Knows how to use both that. He's elusive. Uh, I talked last week about Adrian Giannis' vision, which we saw was spectacular. Sean O'Malley has very calm, very similar physique, very similar vision, very accurate, great at timing his opponent's attacks. He has a variety of strikes between his, his ability to throw punches and kicks and kind of put them together. He can fight from both stances and be effective. He uses feints to really set up his reads. Uh, keeps his hands high, throws a quick jab. He is one of the best slip and rip right hands in the game. Uh, similar to Conor McGregor's left hand is O'Malley's slip and rip right hand. Um, but he doesn't check leg kicks. Uh, you have to wonder if that's still going to be a problem because he won't address it. He's playing off like that was a fluke thing instead of being a a good technique. He's literally like it was a one in a million shot. And we've seen that completely change the game. So he, hopefully, this is just a gimmick he's putting on, and he he is um, finding ways around it. He has serious power. Like, don't be confused by his physique. He touches you, he'll put you out. Uh, He'll throw in some fun spinning attacks. He's been doing BJJ competition, so uh, you know he's expecting to be look much better there. Uh, defense wrestling has been an issue, and cardio has been a little bit of an issue. He slowed down in the and Ware fight. Uh, he slowed down to the Andre Sickman part before the injury. He was starting to slow down a little bit, uh, obviously the injury. Move over to Thomas Almeida. Uh, high guard defense. though He's kind of slow. He's I was talking to Dan Tom from MMA Junkies, a guy who does really good video breakdowns, someone I really respect his opinion. We, we kind of bounce off ideas of each other every once in a while. Uh, I kind of gave him my read about Tom Sameda and see if he agreed. And he did. He said the same thing I did, like very kind of labored. He has a bob and weave style when he like he likes to bob, bounce his head off the center line constantly to throw a combination. But he headhunts with his boxing. Uh, he also admires his punches. That wasn't from me. That wasn't a read I found. That was from Daniel Cormier and Dan Hardy in his last fight. And they kept pointing out like every single time he was getting tagged with shots it was when he was not uh, reloading his own shots. He does have power and he does throw calf kicks. So that is uh very you know obviously he has a punching power to, but even more of the calf kicks. He has a fast high kick, he'll sneak it in there. His offensive wrestling is just non-existent. He just will not look for a takedown. He's never got a takedown in the UFC and hit over the years, his chin has taken a lot of damage because they refuse to kind of give him an easy opponent. They refuse to get, like give him a bounce back fight. As far as prediction, I'm with you. This is totally a setup fight. I think O'Malley styles on him. He predicted a first round knockout when uh, doing a media day when I talked to him today. I, I think he, I think he does exactly what Batista does. Lands very similar shots, but I think he puts him out with those shots. I'm going to lock this in as my lock and I'm not locking O'Malley to win because that'd be really cheap to lock the biggest favorite of the card. I'm locking him to win by knockout.
0: First round. There you have it. Confident pick from Keith Schillen. That brings us to what is now by Battlefield Promotion, the co-main event of UFC 260 as former welterweight champ Tyron Woodley takes on rising contender Vicente Luque. Woodley, the 38-year-old uh, Missourian, is 19-6-1 overall. He is 9-5-1 since joining the UFC in the wake of the Strike Force acquisition. He is on a three-fight losing streak, albeit against, you know, perhaps the top three welterweights in uh, the sport right now, in Kamaru Usman, Gilbert Burns, and Colby Covington. Most recently, against Covington, uh, he suffered a TKO, technically due to rib injury, in the fifth round of a fight, which otherwise he had lost every minute. Uh, previous to that, he lost unanimous decisions to Burns and Usman. For his most recent win, you'd have to go all the way back to his last title defense, which was against Darren Till, uh, via Bravo, Cho- Bravo Choke at UFC 228 in September of 2018. Across the octagon from the former champ is Luque. The 29-year-old Brazilian is 19, 7, and 1 overall. He is 12, 3, and 1 since joining the UFC uh, off of, I cannot remember which season of The Ultimate Fighter, but season of the ultimate fight oh it was uh, att versus black zillions that's the one i only remember that because uh, henry Hooft is the one that gave him his nickname anyway uh luke is on a modest two-fight winning streak uh since losing a unanimous decision to steven thompson back in november of 2019 he uh beat nico price by third round tko last may at ufc 249 then uh knocked out randy brown at UFC Fight Night 173 uh, in August of last year, Luke, comfortable favorite here, uh, minus two forty. You can get Woodley as high as plus two fifteen. Uh, I was probably one of the last people to finally jump off of the Tyron Woodley uh, bandwagon. I, I believed in him for a lot longer than I, I think uh, a lot of other people did, but I'm done. I'm 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 done with with uh Woodley and I'm especially this is a dreadful matchup for him because one thing that Woodley does not even threaten to do anymore is win rounds. You have to go all the way back to round 1 of the Darren Till fight, you know, back in September of 2018 for the last time Woodley won a round because his game is just not built to w- to win rounds. It never was. I mean it was it was always, you know, built to finish fights, but it's even more so now. He's become so trigger shy. It used to be that he'd load up for the huge overhand right, you know, or, or he'd he'd load up for the big knockout shot. Now you can't even say he's loading up, just because he never pulls the the trigger. And to beat Vicente Luque, he would need to win. He would need to win two rounds. I, you know, Luque has spent. What is it now? Yeah, seven years almost in the UFC fighting a lot of aggressive strikers. He, not only has he never been knocked out, he's never even really been like that badly hurt. And that's fighting people like Randy Brown, Nico Price, uh, Mike Perry, Bilal Muhammad. Like, strikers that knock a lot of people out, and they haven't been able to do it to Luque. I'm not going to pick Tyron Woodley to land the one kill shot that that like cracks Vicente Luque's chin. So... Yeah, I mean, this is a very obvious straightforward Luke wins all three rounds to me. Even if Woodley decided, hey, I'm gonna completely retool my game and start trying to wrestle people. Luque it, is one of the most, I think, underrated grapplers in the division right now, just because we haven't had to see it at the UFC level. He's he's become just this, you know, borderline elite. Guy that puts on consistently like wild and entertaining fights. We haven't had to see it, but you know, his dual background in BJJ and Vale Tudo, he is a fantastic grappler, opportunistic grappler, you know, uh, great uh, front headlock, great in scrambles, good at back ticks. Like, it, if Woodley decided to start shooting takedowns, I don't think that would be like any better for him, except maybe to give him a shorter night of work. Uh, I'm not picking that to happen. I'm picking Woodley to do 15 minutes of not much. And get pieced up at range by Luque. Give me Vicente Luque by a probably no 10-8 rounds, but just three very, very straightforward uh rounds in a kind of dreadful fight to watch. And that's what will hurt Vicente Luque most of all, because he's here to entertain us.
1: Yeah, so if I want to make an argument for Tyron Woodley, the thing I would say was, well, yeah, he's you know, hasn't won a round and two years and he's lost 15 rounds in a row. But my argument was well, who he's lost to. He lost to Kamaru Usman, Gilbert Burns, and Colby Covington, probably the three best welterweights on the planet Earth right now. But if I'm going to make an argument, you know, why he could win, it just comes down to one thing at this point. He has an overhand right and he hits hard. And as you mentioned, and we talked about when we did the, when we covered the Colby Covington fight on the recap show, you mentioned that the window is so small. It's like uh, one of those carnival games where the duck is moving and you got to hit it perfectly. It, 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 you know, you know, the ones where you hit it and it falls over. Like, that's it for him. He doesn't throw enough. You said, you know, he loads up but refuses to throw. Like, I feel like he's like that villain when he ha- he's captured the superhero and he's got to give a big speech first. And it's like, dude, just stab him in the heart. Like, don't give a big speech. <laughs> like, that's what I feel like, terrible. like, what are you waiting for? He's always looking for the perfect shot and at this point, it's just an overhammer right, and he loads up, he kind of telegraphs it, he backs up to to the cage, which has been his game for a very long time now. It can help you in the takedown defense, though it has not helped him at all against his last three opponents, but you know to, one to stop takedowns and also to kind of work your way back up but it not only does every talk about the window of of landing shot, your window of avoiding shot is hard Because you can't put your head, you can't do any pull Because, you, you, you know, the fence is right there uh, He is an all-American wrestler In fairness, he did very briefly take down Kobe Covington for about one second But he doesn't use his wrestling And he hasn't used his wrestling in a really long time uh, And I think some of that has to do with his cardio His cardio is shot I think he knows that. I think that's why he fights the way he does, where he's limits his output and he limits the amount of wrestling because that's gonna slow him down. Um and it's just look he just looks like a guy that doesn't have it anymore. Now move over to Vicente Luque. He he's a complete opposite of Tyron Woodley when it comes to output. I mean, he marches down his opponent constant pressure, uh, which is really surprising because he's he's kind of flat footed. Um, and he's a little plotting. That's probably what keeps him from being, you know, taking a step up to the elite. He doesn't have elite, you know, elite athleticism. But he's very effective what he does. He works behind a jab. He stays tight. He throws combos. Your base, just your basic combos. Your one twos down the middle. He has a high guard defense. He he rolls with his punches a little bit. He kind of like the flex punches. Like he does get hit, but a lot of them he kind of deflects where he doesn't catch them so clean. Um, he will eat a shot though. Like he's talked about that. He talked about that today during the media day, but his, as you mentioned, he doesn't get rock. Like he can eat a shot to land one of his own. He doesn't want to do that. He knows that you're playing with fire and that's eventually going to hurt him. And if you do it against Tyron Woodley, like this is not the guy to eat a shot to land one, but you, you don't have to eat a shot you can just land. Cause he's not going to throw back. Uh, he When he does a voice shot He does well to leave himself in the pocket To land his own power shots uh, Good leg kicks when he throws them He doesn't like being backed up And it's very hard to back him up But Leon Edwards was able to do that um, But that probably won't be the case with Tyron Wortley Because he's not going to press the action You mentioned yourself He is a good grappler He does have six submission wins though he doesn't hardly ever look to grapple. But if you try to take him down, he has good takedown defense, uh, good sub-defense, and he has insane toughness. I mean, you just look at the damage he took in the Stephen Thompson fight and actually still made it competitive. And some people thought he won. uh, I can't remember which round it was. It might have been the third round. I don't remember which round. But he was, like, pressing Stephen Thompson, landing hard shots after Stephen Thompson was, like, 10-8 rounded him right before that. You 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 started off saying that you're done with Woodley. I'm done with Woodley, too. To me, he's his own worst enemy at this point. And moving it from five rounds to three rounds, I think hurts me more. Like sure, it'll help him with the cardio where he can probably throw a little bit more. But he also had now he has ten less minutes to land that perfect shot. I think Lukey swarms him. I think he's just gonna out volume him for fifteen minutes, pick his shots. I think Woodley loses all three rounds again. Give me Luke by decision, thirty twenty seven across the board.
0: And with that, we come to the main event of UFC 260, a heavyweight title bout between Stepe Miocic and Francis Ngannou. Miocic, the 38-year-old Cleveland native, is 20 and three overall. He is 14 and three in the UFC. He is on a two-fight win streak, both over uh, Daniel Cormier, of course, to whom he lost in his uh, fight before that. He defeated Cormier at UFC 252 via unanimous decision uh, last August. He faces Ngannou, the 34-year-old Cameroonian by way of France, is 15 and three overall. He is 10 and two in the UFC. He is on a four-fight win streak, having defeated Curtis Blades, Cain Velasquez, Junior dos Santos, and Jairzinho Rosenstrike in a combined oh about. Two minutes and 50 seconds of cage time. The most recent of those performances, a 20-second knockout over the then red-hot Rosenstrike at UFC 249 last May. Despite the outcome of their first fight, despite the fact that Miocic is now the sole leader in UFC heavyweight title defenses. Ganu is once again the slight favorite going into this. He is out there at minus 120, and you can actually still get Miocic at positive money. Uh, He is out there at plus 110 as of the time of this recording. I'm going to toss it to you for the uh, prediction first, but I'm going to throw something out here. And I mentioned it in my column this week, and thank goodness this matchup didn't fall apart. All the other matchups I write about seem to. But... There's there's something kind of sneaky sneaky at stake for Engano here. Put me down as believing that whether he wins or loses on Saturday, Francis Nganu is going to be UFC champ at some point. I I would put money on on Francis Nganu having a UFC belt at some point between now and when he retires, whether it is Saturday or two years from Saturday. Like I, I think Engano is going to. He's just poison for all but a very few fighters. Having said that, this is his last chance to beat Stepe Miocic. Miocic has been saying since before the first Daniel Cormier fight that he's you know he sees the end of the road coming up. He's flat out said, "I'm not interested in fighting guys that are just entering the top 15 now. I've got a few more fights I want to get out of the way and then I'm going to hang it up. He's going to go be with his family. He's going to go fight fires and save the people from uh, of Cleveland." So, if Inganu loses, he may be champ, but he's not going to have any way to get back for another shot at Miocic before Miocic retires. And if we're talking about a current champ and someone that I believe is going to be a future champ, it's kind of legacy time. You can argue that Stipe Miocic is the greatest heavyweight of all time. I believe he is, but if you don't believe he is, you have to at least concede that he is the greatest heavyweight of this time. He's the greatest heavyweight of the last decade, like, hands down, no question. He's the greatest UFC heavyweight champ ever at this point. And if Ngannou has two head-to-head losses to him, it doesn't matter if Ngannou wins the UFC title, you know, a year from now and defends it six times in a row and smashes that record, He he won't be able to say he was the greatest heavyweight of all time or even of this time Because he will have been 0 2 against Miacic, closer to Nganu's prime than the Miacic's. So, I mean, I only bring that up because I'm talking about two guys that I I think are probably going to both end up on the all time list. But that's like, this is a a last shot for Nganu to even this up with Miacic. Because if he beats Miacic, I think they could get Stipe to do an immediate trilogy. Like, Stipe, obviously, he cares about the money to a certain extent. he doesn't care about fame. He does. He is a proud guy. He does care about his legacy. You could tell that in the trilogy with Cormier, he like, he cares about being considered the greatest of all time or, or leaving Mm -hmm. the greatest legacy he can. I I, honestly, if he beats Ngannou, I think he might uh, retire in the cage. If he loses to Ngannou, I think we're going to see a trilogy anyway, weigh in with any thoughts you have on that. And then tell me how you see this one playing out.
1: Yeah. You make a really good point about Ngannou and his legacy. See, if he loses, I agree that he probably will want to do that trilogy. It, de- it Also, depends. Like, it depends on how bad he loses, or how bad the knockout is, whether his family. I mean, if Francis Legato has a chance to knock him out like he did in Alice Overeem, <laughs> he might not have a choice. Like, your family might not want to <laughs> you come back from a knockout like that. Um, I don't think this would be the last fight for him, because right around you talk about the legacy. Right around the corner is John Jones. I mean,
0: I sorry, forgot the D- D- John Jones has already been promised the winner of this so yeah
1: yeah so you have John Jones around the corner it's like are you going to walk away from the fight that is bigger than any fight you've ever had and then you also have i mean if he beats Francis Ngannou uh uh, uh Ngano on Saturday night to, to me it's already just a two dog race between him and Fedor as the greatest heavyweight ever you start breaking down looking at their resumes. You can put Stipe's resume against for instance, I mean, against Fedor with two wins over Francis Engano, two wins over Daniel Cormier, Junior Dos Santos, Alistair. I mean, like the list goes on and on, the guys he has beaten. Uh, Fabrizio Verdum. I mean I'm at the point where I'm like ready to give him the crown already. You add that win in. But now you match him up against John Jones now you change it from greatest heavyweight ever to maybe greatest fighter, period. Like, he starts getting in that realm with a win over John Jones. Or, so, for a guy that hasn't really wanted the fame, I mean, the guy's still a full-time firefighter, which is just insane to me. I'm like, I, I, if I lived in that area, I would be pulling firearms just to see if Stepe shows up. <laughs> you know? He's a true, like, just, the fame hasn't gotten to him, which is funny because we talk about Francis Sangano. That was one of the things about him on his rise up before the fight against Stipe. The first time was basically Dana White saying, Hey, the fame has got to him a little bit, you know, and hopefully he's resettled. This is the guy that went from being homeless to being fighting for the child. He has one of the most incredible stories of all time. So, yeah, I, I don't think this will be the end of we'll see Stipe. And then we'll definitely get more into this. Uh, on SureDog YouTube right after the event on our recap <laughs> um so yeah. make sure you tune into that we'll get into this really we'll dig, dig into this a lot uh but yeah there's a lot on the line to me if he beats Francis I'm sorry Fata, move over it, it might be it might be Fata move over already but if he beats Francis it, to me there's no doubt anymore um as far as you want me to start breaking down yeah, the guys please. So I'll start with I'll start with the champion. So I was there in Boston when Stipe beat Francis the first time. And if when I break down Stipe, nothing like he doesn't like jump off the page with you. Like his athleticism isn't off the charts. His power isn't off the charts. His striking technique ain't off the charts. His wrestling isn't like he's not the he's not an Olympic champion wrestler. He's not. A K1 level kickboxer. He's just the perfect combination of all of it. He's got enough athleticism. He's got enough striking. He's got enough wrestling, intelligence. Uh, that's what I think about when I think about Stipe Mijatich. Uh He throws straight punches. His his right hand is is definitely his deadly punch. Uh, I love the adjustments he made in the second fight against Daniel Carmen, where he started going down to the body. Uh, he's got, he was, I would say he's got, I would to say incredible power for a heavyweight, but he's got good power. Like he if he cracks you, you a good chance you're gonna get knocked out. Uh, similar to what I said against Daniel Corman, where he's gonna have he had to move against Daniel Corman. Like he needed to keep his legs moving to not give him a, a stationary target to shoot takedowns on. Same thing against Francis Angano. He's gonna have to move to not give a stationary target to land a shot. Uh, he has back straight up. Which is a problem. It is why Fabricio Verduin rushed in on him to try to land a shot. I can see Francis Angano doing the same thing, like rushing in on him, trying to catch his, catch his chin. But he can strike backing up. He's one of the. He's got that Chuck Liddell ability of him, where that's how he knocked out Francis. I mean, um, Fabricio Verduin was backing up. His, sin is ch- his, sin is, his chin is solid. Uh, he's only been caught twice. One was. Very early on, Stefan Struth, the other one, was that really short. I don't want to say lucky shot, but it was a little bit of a lucky, I mean, a perfectly placed shot by Daniel Cormier. Uh, though at this point of his career, he's taken enough damage that it wouldn't surprise me if it all crumbled in one night. I mean, he's getting up there in age. Obviously, it's heavyweight. Obviously, you know, you talk about the fights with DC and Struth, who caught him. The, the third fight against DC was a very competitive fight. He had a war, his first fight against JDS, Alistair Overeen hurt him. So, all those things, if he got touched, it it wouldn't have surprised he got knocked out. Plus, let's add in, it's Francis Langano who's hitting them, the biggest hitter in the history of the sport. He's a good wrestler, obviously, uh, does really good to just drive through hips. Um, That's what gets, he's gonna get to that second level, get on the hips, and then drive into that second level. Now, you move over to Francis Langano he just crushes people the hardest hitter in the history of the sport and i said this last time when we talked about him he doesn't get enough credit for his precision though like he lands punches in small windows uh the kane velasquez fight is a perfect example he caught an uppercut on french uh kane velasquez that was coming in when he was about to shoot um but he also, does. even though he's precise, he doesn't need to be precise. He hits you with the grazing shot. He'll put you out. I mean, the, the shot he put Curtis Blades out in the second fight was a grazing shot. His overhand right is one of the scariest punches in ever. Um, his uppercut, he, it's what he caught Alistair Overeem with. It's one of the most beautiful knockouts. I've Probably the most beautiful knockout I've seen. I mean, he made Alistair Overeem's head drop back like a pence dispenser. The same uppercut, the shovel uppercut, kind of shovel hook uppercut, is what he caught Jarzina Rosenstroke with. Uh, he started adding leg kicks in junior, even though it was only one minute of the fight, he started throwing leg kicks. Uh, he does keep his head straight up. We saw that in that first fight. Um, Stipe, especially as he got deeper in the fight, he was able to start slipping some punches, landing uh, shots on the counters. He also did have his leg briefly kicked out from JDS. I'm talking about a one-minute window, obviously. Uh, but his wrestling's bad. I mean, we saw it against uh, in the Steepy fight. And if he comes out swinging wildly like he did against Rosenstruck, yeah, sure, that's going to increase his chances of landing one of those wild blows. And maybe you catch uh, Steepy immediately. But it also increases his chance of getting taken down. If you come out him wildly, he has that reactionary double, which we saw being so effective in that first fight. Uh, same with this cardio; uh, he was breathing extremely hard in that fight against Stipe. If Stipe turns it into a wrestling match, every every minute that goes around, that's going to decrease the chance of him landing one of those shots that's going to hurt him. He's going to start losing his power. It's going to the deeper the fight goes, the more advantage it gives to Stipe. So, as far as the prediction goes. I'm looking at the betting line and I see Francis Ngannou as being the favorite and I understand. But if we're being honest, th- him being the favorite is 100% a gut call. There's nothing in the X's and O's that says he should be the favorite because since he last fought Stipe, what has happened? He fought Derek Lewis to a 15 minute fight where they stared at each other, did nothing. Everything else, I think, like the longest fight, I think might have been Junior Dos Santos, and it was like a minute and ten seconds or something like that. Everything's been quick, knock him out. The Curtis Blades fight, the uh, Junior Dos Santos fight, the Josina Rosen strike. I think I'm forgetting one in there, but everything's been he touches you, he puts you out, one shot. But he's never answered the question. Has he improved his take on defense? No. You know, you hear him. He's out of extreme couture. I did an interview with Randy Couture. Randy Couture mentioned that he's actually been working with him. Who's better to work with than Randy Couture in your wrestling, this and that? But two things stand out. So obviously he's worked on his wrestling, but has he improved his wrestling? That's the question. You can work on your wrestling if you want. Have you improved it? And the second part is... Why do we assume, and I was actually talking to Dalton Rasta from Belta today about this. Why do we assume that, like, someone's been training wrestling for 15 years that, oh, if you train with this great star, you can make up that gap in such a short time? I mean, if I played basketball with LeBron James for six weeks, no one's going to say, oh, you could take Kevin Durant in a basketball game now because you trained with LeBron James for six weeks. Like, that's... Why in wrestling is the only thing we you know, or I shouldn't say wrestling comments sports is where we do that. Like, oh he's been working with this boxer forever. Oh, he must be he should be able to hang with insert good boxer in a feet now. Like it's so, so stupid. So back to back to my point as I get off sidetracks. <laughs> Sorry. It it comes down to a gut call. If you're taking Francis Angano, it's simply a gut call that you in your gut he's going to land that shot before Stepe gets enough takedowns and wears him out. To get a, you know, to get a win, you know, or to try to, you know, slow him down and then continue to get takedowns. I I don't think Stipe is proud enough to try to strike with him. He's gonna have to at moments, but for the most part, like the first fight, he turned into a wrestling match pretty early. My gut is saying that Francis is gonna catch him. Like I just have a feeling that's gonna happen, but my brain says. You got to bet on the unknown. Like, you don't know if he's improved. You don't know if he's stopped takedown. One of two things are going to happen. Either one, he's going to land a shot before Steve even gets a shoot, or two, he's going to stop some takedowns. And then, if he stops stopping some takedowns, especially early, then you might start seeing that scared look in, in Steve's eyes. However, my brain keeps saying to me, I haven't seen him improve it and how many times have we counted stipe out and he just keeps winning i mean he came back he got knocked out by daniel Corman. he found a way to win the second fight most people said ah he was losing the whole fight the second fight he's gonna lose the third fight you know that was kind of a you know dc just has to make his little adjustment he's gonna win i was one of those guys saying that and then he won the third fight so until i see francis nagano Uh, Francis Ngannou improve his takedown defense, I can't bet on him to win. Now, I could look really, really stupid (laughs) because there's a very, I would say, I would say very good chance, but there's a good chance of him just knocking Stipe out in under a minute. And that might change my opinion by the third fight. But as of right now, give me the champion to win again. I think it's going to look just like it did in Boston. 25 minutes of takedowns from the champion. Unanimous decision.
0: Thank you very much for that. I I love the breakdown. For me, kind of like for you, it comes down to two unknowns. The unknown on one hand, you know, if if we're going to if we're going to posit that this fight is going to look any different from the first, because otherwise there's nothing fluky about the first fight. Steepa won all five rounds. At least one of them was a ten eight. Like, there there was nothing, like, fluky or weird about it. So if we're going to even postulate that the rematch looks different, something needs to be different. A thing number one that could be different is that, hey, Miacic is a couple of years older. His chin might not be quite what it was. His cardio might not be what it was. His speed might not be what it was. That's item number one. Item number two, as you pointed out, is that perhaps Nganu, who... Bullied his way up the UFC ranks as, you know, pretty much a one weapon guy has diversified his arsenal. You know, is his takedown defense better? Is you know, is are are those leg kicks he threw against JDS? Are they signs that he actually has a deeper tool set now that he can go to? In looking at Ngannou's run since the Lewis fight, I I, I throw the Lewis fight completely out like. It's neither he nor Lewis has fought anything like that again. That was just a weird aberration. And if they fought again, I actually don't think it would look the same. Uh, but in the four fight since then, the the temptation is to say that Ngannou even better. Because he tore into the UFC, knocking out a bunch of pretty good fighters pretty quickly. And since the Lewis fight, he's knocked out very good fighters extremely quickly. I am going uh, – I owe uh, – Dog Associate Editor Jay Petri for this observation, but when you look past the actual outcomes of the fights, you can make an argument that Ngannou actually looks worse, or at least looks worse as far as what kind of challenge you're going to offer Stipe Miocic. He is less patient. He comes out like a house on fire. Uh, he, you know, is is just throwing incredibly hard. He's, he's super a- aggressive. So not only has he not shown that his takedown defense is any different, like he he's looked like, even though the results of the fights are better, he's looked less refined in some ways. Uh, the Rosenstrike fight was sensational. It was a very entertaining 20 seconds. I, I was very happy. I stood up in, in, you know from my seat and said, yay. But all the things that he did in 20 seconds that Stepe Miocic would make him pay for badly – you know, we could go on for a while. Obviously, there, just the the end came as Nganu came forward and threw three or four huge haymakers as Rosenstrike backed straight up without moving his head. And the fourth one, I think it was, finally caught him. He was dead. Engano killed him again with a couple of ground shots. But Stipe Miocic could have shot a reactive takedown. He could have countered you as you ran straight forward like he did uh, Fabrizio Verdoom, like that sensational knockout that is the fight that got Francis Ngannou this this title rematch was a clinic on what not to do against deep Miocic. it's actually a little alarming uh the things that Francis Ngannou does well it does at an elite level are, are the same as they were you you pointed out that he's great at just killing people through like small you know like tiny openings the thing I love about him whether you're doing deep film study on him or you just watch somebody's highlight reel of <laughs> Francis Ngannou's 12 greatest knockouts. If you watch every single one of those knockouts, they're mostly happening in situations where there's a lot of moving parts, like one guy's running the one guy one way, the other guy's running the other way. But when that strike hits, Ngannou's feet are planted under him and he actually has pretty good mechanics on it. It is crazy how he is able to just plant his feet in like a, a wild collision, the striking <laughs> equivalent of like a scramble, and just throw like a video game perfect punch and the Overeem knockout is a perfect example of that like obviously that it landed flush but it might not have needed to because you take Overeem out of the equation and you just look at like the silhouette of Ngano and he might as well have been in the gym like throwing that uppercut at the mitt just perfect Uh, could he catch Miacic and knock him out and make me look really silly in about 90 seconds of course he could but I'm not picking it to happen. I'm picking Miocic to win, and I'm actually picking him to win as lopsidedly or more so than their first fight. I'm not going to pick Miocic to finish just because it's, a hard, you know, it's hard for me to in- envision that when he put the beating that he put on Nganu in their first fight, and Nganou was still there at the end. But yeah, give me Miocic by unanimous decision. Give me probably at least one ten-eight 10-8 round and Miocic rolling downhill on a very tired Nganu by the end of it.
1: Let me ask you this: Would it be a good thing for the UFC if you won, Francis? Uh,
0: yes, they get. I mean, they get a trilogy fight. Well, no, maybe they don't get a trilogy fight. Maybe they get John Jones versus Francis Nganu. or maybe John Jones suddenly catches a a sudden case of losing forty pounds and moving back down to light, like. I tell you, <laughs> John Jones is a supremely confident guy. I laugh at anybody who thinks high level fighters are scared or shook or whatever. But yeah. if John Jones looks at Nganu like, just say for example, like fighting off Miocic's like determined takedown attempts, you know, for two and a half rounds before just knocking the shit out of him in the third, I think John Jones might reevaluate his career options because that <laughs> is that is a sneaky legacy fight for John Jones as well as whoever's on the other end of this title fight. That's right.
1: And if- I, I, I think it's be good for them. And I'm sure we'll talk about this on the recap if he wins. And, you know, Mike Tyson, I think about Mike Tyson, think about a guy that people talk about 30 years after he was the champion. They still talk about, you know, who would have won this, who would have won that. Francis Angano would, could be marketed as the new Mike Tyson, especially if he starches Stipe and under a minute kind of thing. That's why it would be good for the UFC. But it's it's a really good matchup because if Stipe wins, you can market greatest heavyweight of all time versus greatest fighter of all time moving up once in a lifetime Two you know, two, two guys who are once in a lifetime fighters facing each other. So I think the UFC is in a really good p- predicament no matter what happens.
0: Yeah, this is one of those win-win matchups for them. But yeah, and the... The ad campaigns, the sponsorships certainly write themselves. You know, Francis Ngannou hits like a Ford Escort, you know, and that Ford Escort hits so much harder when there are Toyo tires on it.
1: <laughs> there you go. It's,
0: all right. It's like that's, that's, <laughs> that's it. Uh, the Shillin and Duffy predictions for all 10 fights from UFC 260, Miachich versus Ngannou. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out through the SureDog.com front page or directly on the SureDog YouTube page immediately after the main event as we will be doing a live recap. We will take your questions, comments, and abuse through the comment section as always. And until then, uh, have a good week, enjoy the fight, and thank you for listening.